Okay, so here we are, uh, March 28th, and today we're going to take up again talking about uh, um, Susan Wolf. We're trying to figure out what meaning in life is, and we're going to, we're reading two of her papers, and we're going to start talking about the second paper today, but first I want to talk a little bit more about the first paper. And last time we, we talked about, you know, a couple times ago, we talked about <clears throat> the, um, the three kinds of lives that she finds that are examples of not meaningful lives, and she tries to extract some ideas from these lives about what meaningfulness is. And one of the things that we want to pick up on today is to talk about um, what positive value means. Because she says that a meaningful life has to be a life that engages in projects of, or a project of positive value. And so one way to think about this, you know, I've said a couple times that there are two main components to her theory of meaningfulness. One, that you need positive value, or what she later calls objective value. And the other one, that you need subjective value. Um, and so about this positive value issue, her idea is that you can't get a meaningful life just from subjective value alone. And so she's, in her papers, trying to make sense of um, what positive value is. And like I say, later she's going to call that objective value in our second paper that we read. Okay, so let's read a couple things in relation to this. Let's read at 841. In the first column... In the second full paragraph at the beginning, she says, it will not do to allow that a meaningful life is a life involved in projects that seem to have positive value from the perspective of the one who lives it. Allowing this would have the effect of erasing the distinctiveness of our interest in meaningfulness. It would blur or remove the difference between an interest in living a meaningful life, and an interest in living a life that feels or seems meaningful, end quote. So she seems to think that in order to put your finger on a life that is actually meaningful, you need to make sense of how a project can have positive value, or what she's going to call later objective value. Also look at the second column on that same page. At the very top, she says, to care that one's life is meaningful then is according to my proposal to care that one's life is actively and at least somewhat successfully engaged in projects, understanding the term broadly, that not just seem to have positive value, but that really do have it. End quote. So 
So we have to keep that notion of positive value in our minds because that's going to be important for her that, uh, that whatever kind of project or activity that you think is potentially meaningful, it has to be something that has positive value. Okay, and then we can now talk about the subjective side because, as I was saying, meaningful life, two main components, objective value, subjective value. We just talked about objective value, which she calls in this first paper positive value. Now let's talk about the subjective uh, for a second. I mean, even though we need to make sense of meaningful projects in terms of which ones are objectively valuable or have positive value, value to them, we also need to pay attention to the other side of this theory that in order for a project to be meaningful, it must also have subjective value. So the idea is that subjectivity, it's not just entirely negative um, in Wolf's view, that you need some kind of subjective fulfillment, as she'll call it later, in a project in order for it to be meaningful. Um, look at 838, page 838 in the second column. Uh, actually, 838 in the second column, yeah. And let's see, wait, 838, second column, right. Okay, in the, the third full paragraph, go down one, two, three, four, five, six lines. Here's what she says. To say, now we're thinking about the subjective component of meaningfulness. To say that a ceremony, or for that matter, a job is meaningful, seems at the very least to include the idea that it is emotionally satisfying. An absence of meaning is usually marked by a feeling of emptiness and dissatisfaction. In contrast, a meaningful life, or a meaningful part of life, is necessarily at least somewhat rewarding or fulfilling. That's what she's later going to call subjective fulfillment. But here she just calls it fulfilling, talks about emotions and all that kind of stuff. But she's emphasizing there that in order for a project to be meaningful, you need this some kind of subjective fulfillment, not merely that the project is objectively valuable or has positive value. I mean, you could think, I mean, if you, you can think of examples where you can see pretty clearly that a particular activity is not going to be meaningful if it has positive value, objective value, but does not have subjective fulfillment. For example, imagine a person working on an assembly line making solar panels. So that seems like an objectively, fulfill, objectively valuable activity has positive value making solar panels. But working on assembly line sounds pretty terrible 
So subjectively, that's not going to be a very gratifying experience. It's not going to be subjectively fulfilling. So you, you probably have this intuition just from common sense that working in a factory on an assembly line making solar panels is not an activity that's meaningful, right? And her way of explaining this is that it may have positive value, objective value, but it doesn't have subjective value. It's not subjectively fulfilling. Or take the example of the alienated housewife. Remember, the alienated housewife is the person who doesn't feel that her actions really speak to who she is or who she wants to be. You know, you imagine her doing laundry, taking care of the children, cleaning the house, doing dishes, making food. Similarly, that kind of a case seems to have positive value. I mean, what she's doing is valuable. It's objectively valuable. It has positive value. But it's not subject for her. It's not subjectively valuable. It's not subjectively fulfilling. And so we could understand why the alienated housewife, even though she's engaged in positive, even though she's engaged in activities that have positive value, that her life is not meaningful because it lacks the subjective side. Do you guys have any other examples like that? Uh, examples of someone doing something that has positive value, objective value, but not, <clears throat> at least in certain cases, subjective value. In other words, that is not subjectively fulfilling. Can you come up with any examples of activities or projects like that? That's a good idea. Someone who is a doctor but who doesn't like it for whatever reason wants to do something else. And so that person, you can imagine that person doing her doctoring. What she's doing has positive value, but if she's not fulfilled by it, if it doesn't have that subjective component, then we can see why that wouldn't be a meaningful life. Yeah. Child athlete, you said? Yeah. Right. To yeah, so if someone is, you know, raised by parents who really think they should develop themselves in athletics, then you can imagine someone doing that and even being kind of good at it. And that's, in, you know, engaging in something that has positive value, sports. You can sort of understand why sports has positive value because it brings people together. People learn about, you know, community and obligation, responsibility, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but if that person, if that person's heart is not in it, if they don't love it, if they're not passionate about it, if they don't find it to be fulfilling, then that activity is going to lack subjective fulfillment. And so we can understand why that kind of a person might not find that meaningful, whereas someone else might. Someone else who finds that really fulfilling might find it meaningful. Similarly, with the, white, with the housewife case, if there's a, you know, when a woman really wants that kind of life to be a housewife and to raise kids and to keep the house 
in a good condition and all that kind of stuff, then can understand how that could be subjectively fulfilling for her, you know, or for a guy who's doing that work, if they are subjectively fulfilled by it, because it's clearly something that has positive value. Any other examples of this? This is kind of helpful, interesting. Not kind of, actually. Other examples of activities that have positive value but not subjective value. In other words, activities that have positive value but the, a person is not passionate about doing them. Yeah? Nina, right? Yes. Okay. Arranged marriages. Well, I think I'm thinking of like an example of my great grandmother was in an arranged marriage. It had a lot of positive value to her family because it helped them yeah. and as part of culturally it was significant because you're supposed to do that. Yeah. It's seen as a positive thing. But she wasn't fulfilled by it because she was too young to make the choice for herself at the time. It yeah, no, I think it's a good example. I think, I mean, the, so what's interesting about this example is we have to think about, okay, what does Susan Wolf mean by positive value? She doesn't mean positive moral value. We have to see, basically what she seems to mean, and we'll talk about this more, but she seems to mean that something is, some activity is important in some broader context beyond just the individual. And clearly something like a marriage can be important to a family, a community, a, you know, because it involves creating a family. So socially, that's important, that has positive value. But like you're saying, if someone gets pushed into it, if they're not marrying someone who they choose to marry, that could result in the marriage being one where the person is not subjectively fulfilled. Yeah, marriage is an interesting example of meaningfulness. Huh. Because, you know, we have to do this thing where we separate happiness and we separate morality from meaningfulness. And certainly true sometimes that marriages are not pleasant all the time, or even maybe they're not even pleasant most of the time but they can still be meaningful. So it's an interesting example. Okay. Um, so let's do that now where we do what I was just doing, which is let's think about, you know, I, we've read about it and I've mentioned that, that her theory has, she posits three different dimensions of a good life. Meaningfulness, happiness, morality. Meaningfulness, happiness, morality. And I want to think for a few minutes about that distinct, those distinctions. And remember that she typically understands happiness in terms of hedonism. And now for us, we can think of DH, but we have to not take seriously what Feldman said about not talking about happiness. We, she just takes happiness to be maximizing pleasure, so she's trafficking in a kind of hedonism, and we're just going to forget about what Feldman said about not talking about happiness, because we're just going to talk about happiness. So three dimensions to a good life. Happiness, in terms of understood in terms of hedonism. Morality, 
to be left open, how you determine what that is, and meaningfulness. And then she's going to tell us what meaningfulness is. So that's, I mean, this is a big move because Feldman told us that what it means to have a good life is to maximize pleasure. You know, Feldman told us what it means to have a good life is just to, just to maximize pleasure. And now Susan Wolf is saying, no, wait a minute. A good life involves not just maximizing pleasure, but also involves a moral component and a meaning component. And that's kind of fascinating. And I mean, other theorists who we've read, like the desire theorists, have also been writing basically with this idea that they're talking about well-being, which maybe can be understood in terms of a good life. So when we turn to Susan Wolf, we really back up and say, wait a minute, we've been missing two dimensions of a good life. We've been missing meaningfulness, we've been missing morality. And so maybe sometimes you can even understand Susan Wolf's dimension of happiness in terms of desire theory. Um, and I think, you know, something we sort of leave open, but typically she's talking about hedonism. Okay, so what I want to do now, and we can use her first, the first paper of hers that we read in order to do this. Let's talk a little bit about distinguishing meaningfulness from morality first. And then let's talk a little bit about distinguishing meaningfulness from happiness to sort of think more about this three-way tripartite uh, distinction of dimensions of a good life. So, so to begin, let's, okay, so, I mean, it might be helpful to take some notes here to keep all this clear, because I'm gonna say a bunch of things that are gonna sound complicated, but if you organize them in the right way, it will be very simple. So I'm going to talk about two different distinctions. One distinction is distinguishing meaningfulness from morality. That's the first distinction. The second distinction I'm going to talk about is distinguishing meaningfulness from happiness. But then within each of these things that we're doing, each of these distinguishings that we're doing, I'm going to make three more points. So leave room in your notes for three issues in each of these projects that we're going to undertake. We're going to first try to distinguish meaningfulness from morality. There are going to be three issues there. And then we're going to, which are also kind of distinctions, and then we're going to distinguish meaningfulness from happiness, and then we're going to make three distinctions in there. So first of all, distinguishing meaningfulness from morality, notice obviously that a life can be meaningful, or an activity rather, or a project can be meaningful. Well, forget that, even lives can be meaningful, but not moral. And you can think of people who you can sort of understand as having meaningful lives, but not moral lives. Or let's at least try to see if we can. And I was thinking of, I mean, it's kind of interesting to think about cancel culture, 
in this realm. Because you can think of people who have been canceled for immorality, but who you can still understand as having meaningful lives. And if, if that's right, then we're doing this work of separating meaningfulness from morality. So if you think of someone like Louis C.K. or Kevin Spacey or Heidegger for philosophers, you can see maybe that these people, I mean, is that uncomfortable? It's a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, in this culture that we're in right now where we're really sort of quick to cancel people and we're really sort of, you know, passionate about it, it's a kind of interesting question to ask. Can you say about someone like Kevin Spacey or Louis C.K. who get canceled that even though they're canceled, they're having meaningful lives or they're engaged in meaningful projects? Yeah. Well, you can say that a lot like about the J.K. Rowling. That's one of the biggest franchises. Yeah, what, what was her thing? What, what did she, she do? She doesn't believe that trans people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So many people have said that, like, those books and that sort of fantasy world have made them like so much happier and yeah. You know, or that they found meaningful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because well, forget I mean Okay, so anyway, yeah, the, the point is that she's a writer, she's a successful writer. She's a writer who's written things that are meaningful to a lot of people. She's engaged in these projects of writing that have positive value, clearly, and she's really enjoyed it. They also have subjective value. So it sounds like that's a case of someone having a meaningful aspect to their life, but she's also done something that we consider in the current culture immoral. So it seems like we can see these uh, two things pulling apart, that someone can have a meaningful life but not a moral life. So that's the first thing I wanted to say about distinguishing meaningfulness from morality is namely that you can imagine projects or whole lives that are meaningful but not moral. That's the first point I want to make. And you can even think, I was thinking like, what do we say about specific projects? Like there are people who have been sexual harassers in their workplace, but who've also done meaningful work in their workplace while they were sexually harassing, which sounds terrible. But can we say about that kind of person that they are having some meaningful Activity, enjoying a meaningful project while also being immoral. I mean, these are hard questions right now in our culture because it feels weird to say anything good about someone who's been canceled, you know? And this is a positive thing to say about that person that they're engaged in something meaningful. I mean, if you take someone like, I forget the name of the guy, but, but the lead actor in the TV series called Transparent was... Jeffrey yeah, Jeffrey Tamborn was, you know, accused and by more than one person for sexually harassing on set. 
I think if I have that right. And he also was involved in making a really good series that was also really important. So that's a weird case where, you know, we might even be able to say that while he was doing meaningful work, he was also being immoral at the same time. It's just kind of interesting to push that, you know? It's kind of interesting to, if we're trying to draw this distinction, it's kind of interesting to see if we can, at one and the same time, you know, in one project, claim that someone is engaged in something meaningful while being immoral. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, that's an interesting question. Are we talking about, does this encompass the meaning of their life? Because, I mean, I feel like I won't just, like, okay, if somebody commits a crime, like, they rob a bank or something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, this is an interesting point to bring up for a bunch of reasons. One reason is it reminds us to, to try to clarify this point that when Susan Wolf is talking about meaningfulness, she's not talking about what makes a life meaningful in the sense, of, well, let's put it this way. She's not talking about what meaning, what the meaning of a human life is. She's not talking about what the meaning of a human life is in the kind of way that you get that from religion, where a religion will tell you what the meaning of a human life is. She's not doing that. She has a more modest target. And her target is, I'm going to tell you how to get meaning into your life by engaging in meaningful projects and activities. So what she's doing is something more piecemeal, something more manageable in a way. Um, so that's one thing. But, but what, what, what you raised also makes me realize that, that maybe, maybe there is a problem in talking about someone's life as a whole because... Uh, because maybe it's not so easy when you're talking about someone's life as a whole to distinguish between morality and meaningfulness. Maybe if you're talking about someone's life as a whole, these things are more difficult to tease apart. I'm not sure. I mean, we have to think about that, but it's an interesting line of thought. Um, but... But I think what you're saying, I mean, I think, I think, I think Susan Wolf is open to the point that you're, the main point that you're making, which is that if someone does something immoral, that doesn't like eliminate the value of their life. I think Susan Wolf would agree with that. And she has the, I mean, this is your main point, and she has the kind of tools in drawing these distinctions between morality, meaning, and happiness to explain why. And, that, and that's basically what we're trying to do. Um, but it's, uh, but it's tricky, an interesting kind of territory to, to be in. Okay, but we also, so now here's the second thing I want to do in this first distinction, is just to point out 
that you can have a moral life that's not meaningful. And we've already done this in thinking about alien, the alienated housewife or the person making solar panels in a factory. So those, that's, these are people doing... I mean, we talked about it a minute ago, though, for a different reason. We talked about it a minute ago in order to point out that these are two activities that might not be meaningful because they lack the subjective component. They lack subjective fulfillment. But now we're saying, using those same examples, but pointing out that those are moral actions, being an alienated housewife, not the alienated part is not necessary, but being a housewife or making solar panels, those are moral actions. But, if, but they could lack the, they probably, in some case, well, they lack. If it's an alienated housewife and someone making solar panels in a factory, those examples lack subjective fulfillment. And so they're not meaningful. So the second thing I wanted to point out was just that we can make, we can point to activities or lives that are moral but not meaningful. The third thing I wanted to say is that you can have lives that are both moral and meaningful. You know, you take all these examples of people like Martin Luther King and Gandhi and Mother Teresa. They seem to live meaningful lives and also have plenty of morality in their lives. And so it looks like some of these examples of meaningful lives are also going to be moral lives. So we're just what we're doing is just looking at the way that these two dimensions, morality and meaningfulness, are together or separate. You know, they're separate dimensions because they can be pulled apart. And we can give examples of lives that are one and not the other. We can give examples of projects that are one and not the other. And so these are two different dimensions to um, a good life. And, I mean, just remember about Mother Teresa that the interesting thing that Feldman pointed out is that we can understand that Mother Teresa may not have been happy because there was a lot of unpleasantness in her life. Or, you know, he says, I mean, this is a little tricky because what Feldman says is that she didn't have a good life because his notion of good life was tied to hedonism. But now in the terminology we're using now, we can say that Mother Teresa didn't have a happy life but she had a moral life. And now we're saying she also had a meaningful life. So we're looking at these three dimensions of happiness understood in terms of hedonism, morality, and meaningfulness, and thinking about which examples you can plug in where. Yeah. Well, it's a really good question because it forces us to think about what exactly we mean by happiness. And if we understand happiness to mean that you experience more pleasure than pain, then I think we can say that she wasn't happy because she was, in, she was doing a lot of very difficult things that involved a lot of suffering. Her specific understanding of meaningfulness clearly had some relationship to being closer to God. So I think you could say 
that what you're describing is the relationship between suffering and meaningfulness. You know what I mean? So if we do it this way, following Susan Wolf, we can say, if all that I just said makes sense, we can say that Mother Teresa did not have a happy life, had a meaningful life, and had a moral life. And it sort of helps us to think about what's going on in that particular life, if I'm right about what I just said. Okay, and then the second big thing that I wanted to do, except I feel like we need a little break right now before I do the, because the next thing we're going to do is distinguishing meaningfulness from happiness. And then I'm going to talk about three issues, but maybe I'll take a little break and tell you something. Um, what I was going to tell you is some university business. Remember, the registration is coming up for fall. You guys, as a lot of you are freshmen, right? Freshmen, you don't get to decide your first semester classes or your second semester classes too, I'm not sure. First. Just first? You get to register for second semester? So you guys registered for the spring. And so now you get to register for fall. So I just wanted to remind you that um, registration is coming up starting for certain groups at the end of this week and then kicking off for everyone at the beginning of next week. I think that's right. And, um, and then now I'm going to do my normal philosophy pitching, telling you that our philosophy courses fill up fast. We're running how many? Five different 200-level courses. You know, if you take a 100-level philosophy course like this one, then you can take a 200-level course. We're running five. Um, and there's only one section of each of these courses, except for Introduction to Cognitive Science, which we have multiple sections. So I'm just going to mention the 200-level courses again. Philosophical Issues in Law and Justice, which is a Tuesday-Friday morning course. Critical Reasoning and Arguments, which is a Monday-Thursday morning course which is a good course. If you want to go to law school or do anything cognitively difficult, this critical reasoning and arguments course is really good. Also, we're offering Introduction to Cognitive Science, offering a course called Society in an Age of Technological Compulsion, and we're offering a course called Ancient Philosophy and the Art of Happiness, which will be picking up on a different sort of way of understanding happiness, but related to what we've been talking about. Um, I'm teaching a course in the fall called Meaning in Life. It's a 300-level course. Potentially, you could get into it if you took this course, but you would need a permit. Um, and then I just wanted to remind you about Philosophy for Lunch this Thursday, which is a good one called Where Does Knowledge Come From? And it's uh, we'll look at one of Plato's dialogues where he basically says you already have knowledge through this weird theory, but what's interesting about it is he talks about the way that you know what you, sometimes you know things that you don't think you know. Um, anyway, you know what I'll do though is post on Canvas our, our course page so you can see long descriptions of, uh, of what we um, offer our courses. Uh, any registration questions or are you guys all set? And I guess so. Okay.
Okay, so let's now do the distinguishing meaningfulness from happiness. We just did the distinguishing meaningfulness from morality. Now let's talk about the relationship of meaningfulness and happiness. So clearly, the first issue I wanted to point out is that you can have, you, we have examples of lives that are meaningful but not happy. And remember, we're taking happiness to be hedonism here. And, you know, we have these examples of Mother Teresa, which we can understand to be a meaningful life but not a happy life. We also can think about, you know, certain activities, like visiting someone in the hospital who's a friend or family member. Visiting someone in the hospital who's a friend or family member or going to a funeral um, is the kind of activity that certainly not going to bring more pleasure than pain, um, but it can be meaningful. Let's read, no, not yet. Uh, the second issue I want to raise in this category is to say that you can have a life that's happy but not meaningful. Happy but not meaningful. And some examples are things like, you know, just think of things that give you happiness, but we intuitively, in common sense, understand to not be meaningful. Things like visiting an amusement park, eating chocolate cake, doing crossword puzzles, Susan Wolf thinks those are examples of happiness, but not meaning. Let's read a couple things about that particular distinction. Let's look at 838 in the second column. Thirty-eight in the second column. In the same paragraph that we were in before, which is the third full paragraph, all the way to the bottom and go up four lines, she says, it is noteworthy, however, that meaningful experiences are not necessarily particularly happy. A trip to one's birthplace may well be meaningful. A visit to an amusement park is unlikely to be so. But I'll run over one more. Um, 842, page 842 in the first column. Page 842 in the first column. In the last paragraph, go down five lines, six lines, she says, neither is a meaningful life assured of being an especially happy one, however. Many of the things that give meaning to our lives, relationships to loved ones, aspirations to achieve, make us vulnerable to pain, disappointment, and stress. From the inside, the blob's hazy passivity may be preferable to the experience of the tortured artist or political crusader. She means preferable in the sense of happiness uh, because engaging in these stressful and difficult meaningful projects like being a political crusader or a tortured artist can be very painful it can lead to a lot of stress and that's what she she's just trying to pull apart meaningfulness from happiness to make the case that these are different can be very different you know the the point well let me do well i'll say the point the big the big point of this is even though you find some lives where meaningfulness and happiness or meaningfulness and morality are together in the same life, we also find lives where they're apart, where you can have lives that are meaningful but not happy, meaningful but not moral. And that shows us that these are different dimensions. 
And sometimes these different dimensions are found together, but they can also be found apart, and that shows us. What we're doing is giving a little support to the claim. You know, remember, all philosophy is making claims and then offering supporting reasons to justify claims. And what we're doing here is saying, okay, the claim on the table is that there are three dimensions to a good life. And then, it's a bad sign. And then the point that we're trying to make is that yes, those are three different dimensions. We're trying to, trying to justify the claim that yes, those are three different dimensions. And we offer reasons for that in the form of saying, yeah, look how these come apart in different lives. You can find a life that's meaningful but not happy, meaningful but not moral. That shows that these really can come apart, that they really are different dimensions. It doesn't show that these three dimensions are the correct dimensions for a good life, but they seem like good candidates. And what we've just done is shown that these actually are different dimensions with, with these uh, supporting reasons. And the last thing to say in that second distinguishing meaningfulness, meaningfulness from happiness is that, of course, you can also find lives that have both, that are meaningful and happy. Thoughts or questions so far? Puzzling to me that sometimes it seems like uh, Susan Wolf's categories overlap when she says there are three parts to having a good life happiness, morality, and meaningfulness. But it seems that the happy, number one, happiness is repeated again in the meaningful category list under the subjectively meaningful. Oh, yeah. So yeah. if uh, it, it no, seems almost like in a way you, you wouldn't need that first happiness criteria yeah. because they're going to fail later on yeah. under the meaningful criteria. Yeah. yeah, this is an interesting point and a really interesting, good criticism of what she's trying to do. The point is that if she requires that meaningfulness must have a subjective component... And if she says what that subjective component is by calling it subjective fulfillment, that sounds a little bit like we're talking about pleasure or some kind of hedonism, like there's something satisfying about the subjective fulfillment. And if that's what subjective fulfillment comes to, if we can equate subjective fulfillment to pleasurable experiences, then it sounds like there's a problem because it sounds like now we have happiness in our meaningful category. And so it's an interesting worry and she's nervous about it enough to where, I mean, I shouldn't say she's nervous about it, but she's thought about it. And... I can't remember if she takes it up in this particular paper or in other papers or in her book, but she definitely wants to draw the distinction that John's worried about. She definitely wants to say that subjective fulfillment does not equate to pleasurable experiences. And so she's going to 
go out of her way, especially in her book, to try to say what subjective fulfillment is without making it sound like pleasure. And it could be that in some of her earlier work, if you found something interesting in these early papers, well, the one paper is early, the one paper is late. Did you find something in the, the two-column paper, the Meaning of Lives paper? If you do, John, let me know, because... Uh, well, uh, yeah, she, she did say on page 258 that fulfillment... Wait, we're, oh, we're in the other paper, the 2014 paper. Okay. Okay, wait, 258. So okay. She says fulfillment. Where are you, though? Excuse me? Where are you in the... I'm in, yeah, page 258. This is the second meeting. Yeah, but where uh, on 258? Do you remember? Uh, let's see... Uh, on the beginning of the second full paragraph. Okay. Someone whose life is fulfilling has yeah. no guarantee of being happy yeah. in the conventional sense of the term. Right. And But someplace else where I don't know right now, but she did mention fulfillment, seems like it's a hedonistic term. Yeah. It seems like it's a little... Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, because when she talks about, in this paper that we read for this week, she says that her view, which is called the fitting fulfillment view, you can think of it as kind of a combination of two popular views. And one of the popular views she calls the fulfillment view. And if I'm remembering this correctly, she calls that a hedonistic view. Um, but the next paragraph down, actually. Oh, really? I just page it. Wait, let me see where we are here in this. Yeah, the fulfillment view. So we're... So if you look at page 257, you see that we're entering this section here called the fulfillment view. And that's one of the common sense views that she thinks her view, the fitting fulfillment view, is a combination in a way of these two common sense views. Okay, so in the next paragraph. Yeah, so it was um, the one John mentioned. Uh, further, uh, someone whose life, the next paragraph down at the end of that paragraph. Uh, let's see how many lines. Okay, wait, wait. One, two, Wait, now you're in the one, two, third paragraph. On 258. On 258. And where in that paragraph? Uh, towards the end, it says, um, the sentence that mentions that nonetheless, the fulfillment view, oh, yeah. as I have interpreted, is a form of hedonism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in that a prescription for the best possible life um, rests exclusively on the question of how life can attain the best qualitative character. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and I should just say, what I should just say right now is we're going to get to this, but I'm trying to kind of jump ahead because it's interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, so she says at 258 that the popular fulfillment view, not her view, but the fulfillment view, is a form of hedonism, like you just said. But but the fulfillment view that she's talking about doesn't rest on pleasure. It rests on fulfillment, which is a different kind of 
subjective attitude, let's call it. Um, and what she says on 258 shows us that she's defining here hedonism in a looser way than what Feldman does because she says, now I have a quote uh, from her on 258, but I don't know where it is on 258. It's toward the bottom of the page. She says, positive experience on this view is the only thing that matters. And that's why she takes this to be a kind of hedonism, but she's using hedonism in a broader way than what we're, we used it when we talked, to, talked about um, pleasure being the main thing. Anyway, here's the big picture point though. By the way though, this is what we just did in the last five minutes is the way that upper level philosophy courses go the whole time. It's like confused and trying to figure something out by having a conversation, it's kind of exciting. Um, but here's the big point for, for this. She needs to tell us what subjective fulfillment is in a way that doesn't equate subjective fulfillment to pleasure or maximizing pleasure or anything that sounds like hedonism. And she, she tries. I mean, she's worried about, you no, know, worried. She, she's aware of this. And she characterizes subjective fulfillment in a way that doesn't reduce it to pleasure. So, but this is an interesting thing to keep our eye on because if she can't do this, then there's a weird problem with the subjective component of her theory because it sounds like that is sort of tangled up in hedonism, which, is, which would tangle it up in happiness. And that would muck up these three dimensions of a good life that she wants to understand as being separate. I'll tell you the sort of the punchline of it, I think, I, if I can say it kind of succinctly, let's see. It's that she thinks that fulfillment is a very different kind of subjective attitude than experiencing pleasure. And she thinks, as a matter of fact, that the subjective component of her view and the objective component of her view, remember the objective component of her view is that an activity has to have positive value, that these things are connected in a way where you wouldn't be fulfilled unless what you were engaged in had an objective component. So what she's thinking of is that you're not going to be fulfilled watching TV all day, but you might experience pleasure. And you wouldn't be fulfilled in watching TV all day because there's this kind of thing lacking in that activity, which is that it doesn't have positive value. The idea, there's something reasonable about this, like, There are some things that we do that are pleasurable, but we notice that they're lacking something. And her way of trying to say what they're lacking is that they're lacking positive value or objective value. She also says this about doing crossword puzzles. I mean, there's an interesting story about crossword puzzles at the end of her book, but forget that for now. About crossword puzzles, she said that someone might really experience pleasure and even like challenge and stuff in doing crossword puzzles. But because ultimately there's no positive value there, if that's all you're doing is just crossword puzzles by yourself in your room, then there's something that feels kind of empty about it, even though you're getting pleasure from it. And she thinks that she can explain what this emptiness is by talking about meaningfulness. 
And she can explain what meaningfulness is by talking about what's missing from that crossword puzzle experience, which is that it doesn't have positive value, like, for example, creating art or having a dinner with your family or, you know, or friends or whatever. I mean, we'll talk about these other cases because they're tricky. But, but anyway, you guys are raising an interesting thing to keep your eye on, which, again, is that her theory of meaningfulness has two main components, subjective fulfillment, objective value, which we've also called positive value. If this subjective fulfillment sounds too much like pleasurable experiences, then we're seeping into this territory of hedonism. And that's a problem because we've set this whole meaningfulness stuff aside from happiness and morality. And so she is aware of this, and she wants to try as best she can to distinguish subjective fulfillment from experiences of pleasure. And one way she does that is by saying, I'm not talking about, if, if, if pleasure and subjective fulfillment, I mean, here's, here's another way to put this. Um, I mean, you're really getting more than you bargained for because I just spent the last two years writing about some of this stuff. But she describes subjective fulfillment with a bunch of different words. Think about an activity that is meaningful. Like pick something like playing music with other people. That's an activity that for the right person is subjectively fulfilling. It also has positive value. It has objective value. And she'll say why later. How do you describe your subjective attraction to that activity? She has a bunch of words for it. Being gripped by it. Being passionate about it. Loving it. Being in flow when you're doing that. And she says none of these ways of characterizing that subjective attitude are just merely having pleasurable experiences. So she, she's, she really does try to separate pleasurable experiences from subjective fulfillment. She's not saying that you're not going to have some pleasure, but that's just not going to get the job done of characterizing subjective fulfillment. But it's an interesting issue, and I really worried about this for a while, too. But she's, she's got an answer to it. But I don't know how good of the answer is, but, uh, but she's got one. I think it's not bad, actually. Okay, second paper, which is called Meaningfulness, a Third Dimension of the Good Life. We're on page 254. And we're at the bottom. We're going to talk about examples of meaningfulness. In the kind of, you know, well, just let's, let's just read this and see where we are. Go down four lines from the last paragraph on 254. Here's what she says. When I visit my brother in the hospital or help my friend move or stay up all night sewing my daughter a Halloween costume, I act neither for egoistic reasons nor for moral ones, end quote for a second. Now that's her pointing to happiness when she talks about egoistic reasons. Why? Because she says that happiness is a kind of self-interested part of your life uh, where you're focused on your own interests, happiness, getting pleasure. And so she calls that sometimes egoistic. And so that's why she says... 
I act neither for egoistic reasons nor for moral ones. She's saying that these examples, I mean, what I love about Susan Wolf, really, is that, and also similarly love about Albert Borgman, who we'll read later in Philosophy of Technology, who touches on this, is that she talks about such common examples. You know, she's not saying that meaningfulness requires engaging in some really highfalutin fancy activity. She's trying to figure out which very common activities can be meaningful. And so the examples that she gives, visiting her brother in the hospital, helping a friend move, staying up all night, sewing her daughter a Halloween costume. She says, in these these are examples of meaningful activities. And she's now drawing the distinction between happiness and morality by saying, I act neither for egoistic reasons nor for moral ones. So these aren't moral actions. These actions contribute to a good life, not because they're moral, not because they're happiness creating, but because they're meaningful. Meaningful. That's what she's trying to say here. Okay, then she says, I do not believe that it is better for me that I spend a depressing hour in a drab cramped room seeing my brother irritable and in pain, that I risk back injury trying to get my friend's sofa safely down two flights of stairs, or that I forego hours of much wanted sleep to make sure that the wings of the butterfly costume my daughter wants to wear in the next day's parade will stand out at a good angle. So that's her saying, I don't do these things for reasons of happiness, self-interest, egoistic reasons. That all means the same thing for her. These things, she does not do them for happiness, she says. Because what we're talking about here is, I've been saying, she says, there are three dimensions to a good life. Happiness, morality, meaningfulness. Another way she talks about that is that you can have different kinds of reasons for acting. One, you know, these are different kinds of reasons. A reason from a, re, a, a reason of duty is a reason that's connected to morality. An egoistic reason is a reason that's connected to happiness. And she's trying to say, this is not why I visit my brother in the hospital, stay up all night, making a Halloween costume, or help someone move. So she says, to continue, well, then she says, but neither do, here's the moral point, but neither do I believe myself duty-bound to perform these acts or fool myself into thinking that, I, that by doing them, I do what will be best for the world. So there she's saying, I don't do these, re- I don't do these actions for reasons of morality. So to sum up, she says, I act neither out of self-interest nor out of duty or any other sort of impartial reason. The impartial thought is also connected to morality because when we talk about morality, we normally talk about we shouldn't, that we should be impartial in some sense. Okay, but here's the big punchline. Rather, I act out of love. And love for her is one way of talking about the subjective fulfillment of meaningfulness. So it's her way of saying, her reason for engaging in these actions is not a moral reason, it's not a happiness reason, it's a meaningful reason, 
And she describes the subjective part of that meaningfulness as love. You know, I said she describes subjective fulfillment in a bunch of different ways that are all related, she thinks. Being gripped by something, loving something, being passionate about it. You know, Gesundheit, you can think about, say, what you're, what you're subjectively fulfilled by is acting. So you can also, you can capture that subjective fulfillment by saying you're passionate about acting, saying you're gripped by acting, saying that when you're acting, you get into a flow state, or you can say that you love acting. And that's the kind of meaning that she has in mind when she talks about love. It's like being passionate about something. And so she says about all these examples that she acts out of love. Fascinating. I mean, I mean, I, you're probably not fascinated, but just in, from philosophy point of view, it's, it's a really interesting bunch of stuff. So, as I was just saying, we see that Susan Wolf is talking about these three dimensions of a good life in terms of three different kinds of reasons or motives for acting. A self-interested reason, which is a happiness-related reason, egoistic reason, or a, a reason from duty, which is a moral reason, or acting out of love, which is her way of pointing at meaningfulness. And again, the point is that the subjective fulfillment part of meaningfulness, she characterizes it in terms of being passionate, loving something, being gripped by something. That's all subjective fulfillment. So let me just say this again about these reasons for acting. She talks about it on page 254, above where we quoted. But she says, first, when we act morally, we act for moral reasons or reasons of duty. When we act to further our own happiness, we act for egoistic reasons or reasons of self-interest. And when we act to establish meaning in our lives, we act for reasons of love. Loving a person, because you can have meaningful experiences with a person in your family. She's talking about visiting her brother in the hospital. You can have meaningful experiences playing music or acting or being an environmental attorney. And you can talk about those activities and your relationship to them as loving that work. So now, let's read 255 in the second full paragraph. And go down four lines, and she says, because of the similarities in the motivational and deliberative stance of these subjects to that of people who act out of love for individuals, I shall use the phrase reasons of love to cover the former as well as the latter type of case. You know, where you're talking about loving an individual or loving something uh, that's an activity that is potentially meaningful. To continue here with the quote, my claim then is that reasons of love, 
whether of people, ideals, or other sorts of objects, have a distinctive and important role in our lives, not to be assimilated to reasons of self-interest or to reasons of morality. And again, the reasons of self-interest, that's her gesturing at happiness. And that's her way. So what she's doing here is starts off by saying there are three different dimensions to a good life, happiness, meaningfulness, morality. And then she starts talking about these three different dimensions in terms of different kinds of reasons for action. Acting because you think you have a duty is to act in the moral dimension. Acting out of self-interest is to act in the happiness dimension. Acting out of love, in this broad sense of love, passion being gripped, is to act in this meaningfulness dimension. It's a fascinating way to talk about it, to think about why you do what you do, and to try to think about the reasons as being categorized as either moral, self-interested, related to happiness, or related to meaningfulness. I mean, I'm not alone in being amazed by Susan Wolf. Her, her view, it's weird because philosophers have written about meaningfulness in one way or another for thousands of years. But it's only in the last 20 years, for some reason, that a bunch of philosophers have started writing specifically about meaningfulness through this methodology of philosophy that's called analytic philosophy, that's sort of the most common kind of philosophy in the US, in the UK, and in Australia. And so there's a real emphasis in the last 20 or so years on this question of what makes life meaningful. And I say this just to say that Susan Wolf has put forward a view that's the most widely accepted view among all these people who are currently writing on meaningfulness. So it's not just me who's excited about Susan Wolf. She's really uh, caught the attention of all the people writing on this in a really focused way right now. Okay, so ask me some questions that might sound stupid in your head, or they might not sound stupid in your head, but ask me some very simple questions or questions of perplexity or whatever. Yeah. Um, as I was reading, the Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Uh, it's true that, uh, that she associates, she, whenever she talks about reacting for reasons of self-interest, she's talking about happiness. And she thinks that's selfish because it's only about your own pleasure, because we're taking happiness to be about hedonism. Or even take desire theory. Still, it's self-interested issue especially when you compare it to morality or to meaningfulness, because meaningfulness connects up with what's important in an objective, positive sense. So, you know, I mean, these examples that she gives are interesting of meaningful activities, like making a dress for her daughter and really staying up all night doing it. That's not going to make her happy because she could experience a lot more pleasure by doing many other different things. 
But she does it because she loves her daughter and because this action is constituting a kind of positive value and meaningfulness in her life. So I guess that's the... So I, Okay, so the, the point is maybe is that part of what might sound odd about this is that she's just accepting that happiness is a very self-interested part of life. You're just trying to accumulate pleasure, feel good, you're self-interested self in that realm. So I guess that's... It's an interesting thing to flag, and I guess that's the point. And it's only when we get to meaningfulness that we really, or morality, where we really start to have the rest of society or other parts of society in, in mind in choosing what we do. Yeah. I think I kind of disagree with Susan Wolf in regards to like happiness is very self-centered, because there's definitely meaningful activities you can do for like family members or for other people that make you happy in the end, yeah. just because they say thank you or because yeah. you know it makes someone else happy. So like, say for instance, you like help your grandmother walk up the stairs. Yeah. It's not a matter of that's not egotistical because I'm getting happy by you know helping my grandmother. It's more meaningful in the sense that you know I'm spending more time with my grandmother and like she's happy that I'm helping her. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're trying to think about something that's really difficult to think about, which is, I mean... I wouldn't consider that egotistical. I know, but here's, here's, what's, here's what's complicated about this, and here's why philosophy is so difficult and kind of fascinating to me, is that we have these common sense intuitions about what we're trying to talk about, and they're blurry, and we're trying to figure out, does this definition of happiness and meaningfulness, do those capture this kind of intuition we have of what meaningfulness is? And then we raise some examples and try to think about it. Different, I mean, notice how Feldman captures, there's this, we all have this intuitive understanding of what it means to lead a good life. Feldman tries to describe what this is, a good life. And Susan Wolf also tries to describe what this is, a good life. And they both have very different ways of doing it. For Feldman, it's just maximizing pleasure. And he just leaves morality out of it, and he doesn't talk about meaningfulness at all. For Susan Wolf, you have to have all three of these dimensions. Now, if you have a kind of intuitive concern, worry about a theory, one of the things you're doing, which I think you're trying to do, is worry about how certain examples don't seem to be quite captured in the theory the way I would like in order to feel comfortable with the theory. And that's what's so interesting to me about philosophy is that we have some target of investigation that we're trying to explain. It could be happiness. It could be other. I mean, for example, some people in the philosophy of art try to define what art is. That's a very, I mean, this was my, anyway, whatever. That's a very vague, difficult target of investigation, art. And you look at these different theories trying to capture that phenomenon of art. And 
you assess these different theories for one reason, according to how they satisfy your intuitions. Like, is that... Because some definitions of art will be very deflationary and say something like, well, anything is art if gallery curators and critics decide that it's art. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Isn't there something else going on with that idea of art that that kind of a definition misses? So my point is just that we're always involved in this kind of back and forth. And it's really interesting to try to figure out when a theory works and when it doesn't. And this is, we're doing this now through the whole course with these big ideas of a good life or happiness and stuff like that. Bye for now. <laughs>